Last week we dove into the clear water of John's gospel and the miracle of turning water into wine, and today we'll be exploring its depths. We begin where we ended last time by placing this miracle in the larger context of John's purpose in writing his gospel, which is found in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, and reads, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In his gospel, John raises and answers two important questions, questions you may be wondering about today, as many do. Who is Jesus, and what does he want? And John's aim is not hidden. He writes to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus does what he does, and he says what he says, so that we'll believe in him and be saved. So as we dive in this morning, it's fair to wonder, what is there about this story that would lead one to faith? What is so compelling in this narrative that it would inspire one to believe in Jesus? Well, let's look at what this miracle reveals about Jesus. And let's begin with recognizing Jesus as creator. He took water and he made it into good wine. This is one, if not the most understated of the miracles Jesus performed. And yet, what he does is truly amazing. Dr. Jim Williams is a professor of anatomy, cell biology, and physiology at Indiana University Medical School. And he describes the miracle in a way that only someone with his training can. He wrote this in a blog titled Thoughts from a Scientist and Sunday School Teacher. It's a long excerpt, but I trust you will find it helpful. The steward tasted the liquid given to him by the servants and declared it to be the good wine. Now I ask, what does that mean about the liquid that he tasted? What was it made of? Well, to give the flavor and feel of good wine, an array of substances must have been in the wine made from water. To begin with, wine has alcohol, sugars, and other organic molecules that make up several percent of its total composition. But the taste of wine has more to do with the sensation of what one smells more than anything else. And the molecules that give wine its aroma and bouquet are relatively complex structures. Similarly, the feel of wine in the mouth comes from other molecules also relatively complex. And while we are at it, even the color of wine is due to some very complex molecules. Thus, in thinking about this miracle, in changing from water into wine, the liquid had to go from chemically simple to chemically complex. In order for the flavor, color, and even texture of liquid to be sensed by the steward as good wine, there must have been present a substantial concentration of complex molecules in the new wine. But the change is really even more dramatic than just complexity. I confess that I've always thought of this miracle as being one of rearranging the atoms of the water to get wine. That admittedly would be quite a miracle, but for me, it still would involve, to some extent, the conservation of matter law that was drilled into me in my chemistry classes. 
But when I listed out the approximate composition of first century wine, I discovered something that surprised me. Water, even rather dirty water, does not have the correct atoms to make wine. Those sugars, alcohols, aromatic compounds, and colors contain much more carbon and nitrogen than would be in water. In order for the water drawn by the servants to become a liquid recognized by the steward as good wine, new atoms would have to be formed within the jars. That is, the miracle of water to wine must involve the creation of new carbon atoms, new nitrogen atoms, and a number of other elements, such as a rather large amount of potassium. To drop away from the chemistry for a moment, let me say it this way. In changing the water into wine, Jesus did a miracle that was more than just a rearrangement of the stuff of the water into something else. It was the making of new stuff. The formation of new atoms is really just like the old lead into gold idea that the alchemists are said to have pursued. In modern science, this kind of transformation can be done, but only in giant particle accelerators or special systems like that. It's never something that can be pulled off in the chemistry lab. Atoms always stay the same in the lab. They can be rearranged into different molecules, but they never change into something else. Oxygen never becomes carbon. Hydrogen never becomes nitrogen. Such things cannot happen. Do you see the implications for this minor, minor in quotations, miracle? Jesus caused the water to be changed into wine, apparently mostly at the urging of his mother, and to keep the bridegroom from being embarrassed about the poor provision for the celebration. But the miracle was, in one sense, not very different from the initial creation itself. Creation ex nihilo, the Latin phrase used to describe God's creation of the universe, creation out of nothing, something from nothing, matter and energy, where previously there was nothing at all. So to second this motion from Dr. Williams, let me ask, how does your Bible begin? If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how was John's gospel introduced? Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is this word? John goes on to tell us in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word is Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, who became a man and who demonstrated his glory so that it could be seen. By the way, check out verse 11 of chapter 2. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. In the beginning, God created. And in the beginning was the word, the Son. And what was he doing? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. John draws a straight and unmistakable line in his gospel to the deity of Jesus. He writes of his 
pre-existence, a truth borne out in other places in his gospel. John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. In John chapter 17, verse 5, he talks about the glory that he had with his father before the world was made. In John chapter 6, verse 33 and 38, he talks about coming down from heaven. And here in chapter 1, John writes of the pre-existent Jesus, who always was, who always will be, eternal God, the Son, present in the beginning. And what is he doing? He is creating something out of nothing. The earth from nothing. And now in John chapter 2, turning water into wine. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. And so we rightly sing, you are Lord of creation and Lord of my life. Lord of the land and the sea. You were Lord of the heavens before there was time. And Lord of all lords, you will be. Jesus is the creator. And being God, what Jesus creates in Cana is good in quality and good in intention. The wine at this party has run out. Wine in Scripture can be a symbol of God's blessing in abundance. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, praises God and says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants, for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. When wine is a symbol of God's blessing and presence, then the lack of it may be interpreted as God's judgment or absence. And so Psalm 80 laments the trampled vineyard whose walls are torn down. And Habakkuk speaks of barren times when there is no fruit on the vine. And Haggai also writes of the vine that yields nothing as proof of God's withdrawn favor. It is a travesty for the wine to run out. It is a travesty at a wedding celebration for the wine to run out. Wine is joy. And when the wine runs out, the blessing, the joy, runs out with it. And so Jesus, the creator, Jesus, the miracle worker, restores the joy. Jesus is the joy giver here. Jesus is the source of great joy. Now let that sink in and help shape your idea of who Jesus is and what he wants for you. Because he has a bad rap among those who don't know him well. And that would be that he's a killjoy. Too many people have uncritically accepted the view of God and God's people, perpetrated by the likes of H.L. Mencken, who defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Listen. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, the scripture says. He is accused of being a glutton. He is accused of being a drunkard. He has no problem with good friends. He has no problem with good times. He has no problem with happy. He brings happy to the table. He is not about the onerous, arbitrary imposition of joy-sucking rules. In fact, I believe there's a sign of this in how the miracle transpires. See, Jesus could have made wine out of anything, really. But he chose the vessels, stone water pots, 
that were used for what? Ceremonial washing. Rituals of purifications. The Jews were big into this type of washing. Next week in our reading plan, we'll find ourselves in Mark chapter 7. And we'll come across this account where Jesus is questioned and confronted because his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. It's not that the disciples are being dirty or that they're grubby. This is not a criticism about hygiene. It's about ritual purification. It's about a tradition that has come to mean more than it ever should have. People have come to believe that they are made clean inside and outside by religious observations like ceremonial washing. So Jesus takes the water of religion that makes some people feel acceptable and right with God with its time-consuming and some would even admit repetitive and vain rituals that say this is how you become clean by the work of your own hands, by your good works. He takes this water of religion, something to do, and he transforms it altogether into something different, something he has done. So it is no longer you do the work and clean yourself up. It is more like the work has already been done. So drink it in and enjoy. As one writer put it, by using the jars of purification to contain his miracle, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you won't be needing these anymore. Now, do you suppose there's anything in that little detail John includes that these are stone water pots? Twice before, a man of God had brought water from a stone to quench the thirst of Israel. Could it be that here we find a greater, better Moses who upgrades the water and from a rock brings wine? Not just for survival, but for celebration. I'll leave that for you to ponder if you wish and just sum up this point by reiterating that Jesus is the joy giver. Jesus is the joy maker. And he brings joy by transforming something old and ordinary into something new and spectacular. So William Barclay says, now we can see what Jesus is teaching us. Every story John tells us, tells us not of something that Jesus did once and never did again, but of something which Jesus is forever and eternally doing. John tells us, not of things that Jesus once did in Palestine, but of things that Jesus still does today. And what John wants us to see here is not that Jesus once, on a day, turned some water pots of water into wine. He wants us to see that whenever Jesus comes into life, there comes a new quality, which is like turning water into wine. And Paul would later say anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, right? Just like the water in those water pots, not dabbled with, not prettied up a a little bit, not spiced up a bit, but made different, made new. New and good, said the master of the feast. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. What Jesus makes is called good, and we hear in the declaration of the steward the echo of the first creation 
when God looked upon all he had made and saw that it was good. The nature and the quality of Jesus' creation is good. He makes good wine, and he makes lots of it. Six water pots, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, means 120 to 180 gallons of excellent wine. Packaged by today's standards, a 750 milliliter container, do you realize that would be between 600 and 900 bottles of wine? So you see here, right, not only is there newness with Jesus, but there is super abundance. He is liberal and not stingy when he gives. And that's why he can claim in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This extravagance, this, this abundance that is offered by Jesus stands in stark contrast to the dwindling rations of everything physical in this world. It is the nature of everything in this world to run out. It is the nature of everything physical in this world to peter out, to dry up, to cease to be. This is true of, of health. It's true of our looks. It's true of strength. It's true of abilities, of fame. It is true of every human undertaking and experience. No matter how intoxicating it is today, it cannot last. Eventually, as one preacher put it, the wine of every human endeavor runs out. And that is why Isaiah the prophet pleads with his people in Isaiah 55, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Listen, God is the banquet we were made for. God is the food and the drink we truly need. And if I had lots of time right now, I'd take you to John chapter 6, where Jesus said something very startling about eating and drinking, but you'll have to go figure that out on your own. But unlike the food and the drink of this world, God never fails. His supply is inexhaustible. God never runs out. So who is Jesus? According to John, Jesus is creator. Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus is a joy giver. We may, may as well add to that Jesus is a rescuer, for that is certainly what he did for the groom in this circumstance, saving him from a, a sentence of humiliation and disgrace. And that is, of course, what he came to do on a much larger scale with eternity in mind when he gave his life on the cross to be the atonement for our sin, to save us from the humiliating consequence of death and to give us eternal life. So Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has rescued us. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus is the one here who saves the day. And Jesus is the one who saves, period. And in this text, he is also the better, the perfect bridegroom. 
this earthly husband, whose name we don't even know, was probably a good fellow. He presumably did his best laying out his goods for his wedding celebration. He's not criticized in this passage for being cheap or having done anything wrong intentionally. But in the end, he just came up short. He didn't have enough. So in steps Jesus. And he does for this imperfect man what this imperfect man could not do for himself. Just as on the cross, he would do for us what we could not do for ourselves and would make up for our lack and make us look better than we are because he's kind and because he's gracious and compassionate and because he loves us. This picture of Jesus as the greater groom at the wedding feast, it points us ahead to the book of Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride of Christ, the church, is dressed in white, having been perfectly provided for, having been cleansed and made new by the groom, Jesus. How blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 9 says, this is what the Bible says, how blessed are those invited to this marriage supper. So you might want to know, how does one get an invitation to this never-ending celebration? My friend, the invitation is given. Everyone who thirsts, Isaiah says, let him come. Everyone who is weary, Jesus says, come. You who are heavy laden, come. This is what Jesus says to do. And if we're paying attention at all to the text describing this miracle in John 2, we see the great value in doing what Jesus says to do. Because this is what Mary, Jesus' mother, told the servants at the wedding feast. Do whatever he tells you. And they do it. Even though it probably in the moment didn't make any sense to them. Lugging all this water for washing when the problem is a lack of wine for drinking. Taking a cup of water to the master of the ceremonies when he really wanted wine. Hey, sometimes God calls us to obey even though what he wants us to do doesn't make sense to us. And sometimes, listen friend, sometimes our obedience is part of something much larger than ourselves. Something well beyond our thoughts, well beyond our imagination, something that is going to illuminate him, something that's going to glorify him. Think about this. The unnamed servants carried literally delivered the miracle of God. Don't you know, dear ones, that God does extraordinary things through ordinary people? And if you want your life to count for something, then do what he tells you to do. Do not delay do not harden your hearts to his command. Do not wait for everything to make sense to you. Today, if you would hear his voice, do whatever he tells you to do. When it's all said and done, what good work of God will your obedient hands and feet have delivered? The Reverend Dr. Winford Neely was preaching on this very passage when he noted, Missional responsibilities belong to us. 
Miracles of life transformation belong to Jesus. We cannot transform anyone's life, but we can carry the water of the Word of God wherever He tells us to. We can carry the water of the Word of God, and Jesus can turn it into wine. And the world needs more water carriers, more Gunga Dins, not in the service to the queen, but wholly in service to the king of kings. And so we must not miss this great takeaway for all of us coming from this first sign of Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to. There is more still to this story. We have not touched on the allusion to the third day have not spoken of the wine of his blood or the wine of a new covenant or even what this would have meant to John's Greek readers who themselves had an affinity for wine and also a God for it, but not a God like Jesus. Even what I have spoken of today is underdeveloped, but I trust that I have carried the water and God will do with it what he will. For that is what happened in Cana. Not just that water was turned into wine, but that the miracle fulfilled its divine intent. John calls this miracle in verse 11 of chapter 2 the first of his signs. What is the purpose of a sign? Signs point us in a direction. Signs point us to realities beyond themselves. Signs call for our attention. Signs testify to something This understated miracle is a sign, and as we have seen, it's full of signs that teach us, as as John's whole gospel will, who Jesus is and what he wants. He is the Son of God. He is God. And he wants you to believe in him, to put your faith in him, and be saved. And that was indeed the result of this first miracle, explaining why such a diverse band of Galilean men would leave everything to follow him and would be faithful to him. They saw with their own eyes. Probably here they tasted with their own tongues the power of God in Jesus on display. So John tells us, and his disciples believed in him. Do you?